Welcome to today's edition of the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. In addition to feature reports, I'll bring you a look at regional and national agricultural news. And the show starts with a look at California agricultural news. Early registration for the 2024 Crop Consultant Conference hosted by Progressive Crop Consultant Magazine and Western Region Certified Crop Advisors is now open. The popular event for certified crop advisors, pest control advisors, grower applicators, and industry professionals is the mainstay for all continuing education needs this year and will take place on September 25th and 26th at the Visalia Convention Center. Visit myaglife.com slash events for the early discounted rate of $275 per person, which includes the live conference, a trade show with 70-plus exhibits, first-class dining, entertainment, and a mixer. We'll see you there. The California Irrigation Institute's 62nd Annual Conference will be held on February 26th and 27th. The theme this year is Fluid Futures Adapting to Extremes. The conference will take place at the Hilton Sacramento Art and West in Sacramento. The event will begin with a general session on Monday starting at 8.30 with welcome and introductions. And then the first presentation is called The View from Space, From Global Water to Regional Applications for Resource Water Management. The day will continue with a response panel. And then we'll continue on Monday afternoon with split sessions addressing agricultural and urban issues. The event will continue into Tuesday morning with leveraging artificial intelligence to maximize water use presentations. There will also be exhibitor sessions. For more information about the upcoming event, contact the California Irrigation Institute. Senator Steve Padilla, a Democrat from San Diego, has introduced Senate Bill 1105, a measure to allow California farm workers to use sick time when weather conditions prove too hazardous to work. 2023 was the warmest year ever recorded on Earth, according to an analysis by scientists from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. As the climate has changed, the frequency of catastrophic climate-related weather events has risen, forcing communities to face challenges such as wildfires and smoke, deadly heat domes, record-breaking atmospheric rivers, and once-in-a-generation flooding. In analysis by the Environmental Protection Agency, scientists found communities of color or low-income groups are more likely to be vulnerable to the health impacts of climate change. One group disproportionately exposed to such harmful elements are agricultural workers. Agricultural workers are 35 times more likely to die from heat stress than workers in any other industry across the United States, according to a study conducted at the George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. Extreme heat fueled by the changing climate, as well as increased exposure to wildfire smoke due to intense drought, will deeply impact these communities as well. In an analysis conducted by Mother Jones of the 168 farmworker deaths in California between 2018 and 2022, 83 of the 168 tragically lost their lives when temperatures in the surrounding area exceeded 80 degrees Fahrenheit, the temperature that's triggered California's heat safety requirements. Senate Bill 1105 would prohibit employers from denying agricultural workers the right to use their sick days when local or state governments have declared an emergency due to smoke, heat, or flooding conditions. Upon a declaration of an emergency, the bill would require the Division of Occupational Safety and Health to make a determination if the conditions make it dangerous for agricultural employees to work outside in that region and issue a notice of that determination. 
The California Fresh Fruit Association is pleased to announce a recipient for the Mentors Award, along with the speakers that will headline the industry workshops during its upcoming 88th annual meeting, which will be held March 10th through the 12th at the Ritz-Carlton Half Moon Bay. The association will honor Louis Pandall of Pandall Brothers, LLC, with the prestigious Mentors Award, which is bestowed to an individual who has demonstrated exceptional dedication to the California fresh grape, berry, and tree fruit communities through their leadership in the industry. Pandal's an owner-shareholder in Pandal Brothers Incorporated, a leading worldwide marketer of fresh table grapes operating in Delano, where he serves as chairman of the board. This year's industry workshops will feature three sessions, one on Monday and two on Tuesday. On Monday, the industry workshop will feature a panel on agricultural technology. And then on Tuesday, attendees will hear from Abby Tabor Silva of the California Agricultural Leadership Foundation. She will be providing a presentation to attendees focusing on management versus leadership and how the best leaders balance and cultivate both roles in tandem. There will also be a session on implementation of AB 2183, California's card check law. For more information on the 88th annual meeting, log on to cafreshfruit.com. The California Table Grape Commission is providing USDA with input on ways to enhance competitiveness through formal comments at the California Department of Food and Agriculture State Board hearing, which opened the World Ag Expo in Tulare, California. The testimony was offered by the commission's incoming president, Ian LeMay, and provided recommendations focused on enhancing competitiveness in the U.S. marketplace, expanding exports, extending USDA food purchases for those in need, supporting research initiatives, and encouraging the adoption of new technologies. Competitiveness has long been a commission priority, according to LeMay. They hope the state board sees value in the recommendations and includes them in its feedback to USDA. According to LeMay, the purpose of the testimony before the state board was to encourage the inclusion of table grape grower priorities in the comments that CDFA will make to USDA on behalf of the state's specialty crop growers. Noting the need to sell more U.S.-grown products to U.S. consumers, the recommendations include the establishment of a domestic promotion program modeled after the successful market access program. The new program would allow for grower organizations to apply for and match funds to promote in the U.S. the biggest market in the world and one that is critical to the survival of table grape growers. Regarding exports, the commission urges support for doubling of MAP funding in the next farm bill. Mark Munger, Senior Director of Marketing for Castro-based Ocean Mist Farms, the leading volume supplier of both conventional and organic artichokes, says that in terms of both price and quality, February does not typically offer an overabundance of vegetable promotional options, but they will have good supplies of artichokes. Ocean Mist winter production coming from the Coachella Valley in Southern California is entering its peak volume period for artichokes. For the next four to five weeks, they will have their highest level of harvest and certainly enough for some winter promotions according to Munger. Winter production has been met with almost perfect growing conditions. There were several rain events, but they were spaced out favorably and did not hurt the rain-tolerant artichoke plants. In fact, they helped size the artichokes to the point that this year's crop is headed towards larger sizes. Munger noted that about 10 to 15 percent of ocean mist artichoke volume is organic, and the grower shipper will have sufficient supplies for February-March promotions, though it would not speculate as to where the market price will be. There are very limited numbers of suppliers in organic artichokes in a winter, which means the market supply demand curve and the market price are not easy to forecast. Ocean Mist will be offering its organic artichokes in a variety of options, including bulk as well as two and four pack clamshells. Harvesters go through an artichoke field several times with the first pass yielding a relatively large artichoke, 12 to 18 size, off the main stock. 
Subsequently, the plant will produce four or five more auxiliary stalks, which typically produce smaller artichokes, which are 18s, 24s, and 30s. The smaller artichokes are the ones that are usually sold in a four-pack clamshell. Munger said the different sizes give retailers more promotional and display options that fit their needs, with larger artichokes more prevalent at the early end of harvest and smaller artichokes playing a dominant role at the end of the winter season. While non-citrus fruit production is predicted to remain relatively stable for the next decade, citrus output will fluctuate and nut production is projected to grow, according to USDA in its long-term outlook report. The USDA said total U.S. fruit and tree nut production volume is expected to exceed 51 billion pounds in 2033. The farm value of fruit and nut trees will rise to $33.8 billion by 2033, up from $26.6 billion in 2023, according to the agency. Grapes, strawberries, and apples represented 70% of non-citrus fruit farm value in 2022, according to USDA. During the 2022-33 to period, the share of fruit farm value for these non-citrus commodities is expected to increase slightly, while stone fruit acreage in some states is transitioned to other crops, according to the report. Production volume for non-citrus commodities is expected to be relatively flat over the next decade, as plantings of higher-yielding varieties offset a slight decline in non-citrus acreage. U.S. citrus production levels are projected to continue their long-term decline through the middle of the decade before stabilizing, according to USDA. This trend is attributable to declining orange and grapefruit production alongside increasing production of lemons and tangerines, according to USDA. California is expected to remain the production leader of fresh oranges, grapefruit, tangerines, and lemons, but is expected to see mild reductions to the volume of its grapefruit and orange crops as they lose market share to other citrus and non-citrus fruits. Meanwhile, the USDA said production in California of lemons and tangerines is expected to increase throughout the projection period. The total value of citrus production in the U.S. is projected to increase by 25% during the 2022-33 to projection period due to higher prices. For tree nuts, the USDA said low output prices and high input prices are expected to shrink tree nut producers' margins, causing small decreases in bearing acres for almonds and walnuts. Over the entire projection period, population increases are expected to fuel global demand for tree nuts, putting upward pressure on prices and pushing total bearing acreage and production higher, according to USDA. From 2022 to 2033, aggregate tree nut production is expected to increase by approximately 17% from 7 billion pounds in 2022 to 8.1 billion pounds in 2033. The value of tree nut production is expected to increase during the baseline period to $9.2 billion by 2033 but remain below total tree nut values recorded in 2021, according to USDA. The USDA projections assume export demand gradually increases and average yields for most nuts remain flat or slightly lower during the baseline period. The family of autonomous tree and vine sprayers from Gus continues to grow. GUS, short for Global Unmanned Spray Systems, are self-driving rigs manufactured in Kingsburg, California. The company launched the original orchard model in 2014. According to GUS COO Gary Thompson, it followed with the Mini GUS and Herbicide GUS. At the recent World Ag Expo in Tulare, the company unveiled Electric GUS. It uses the same spot spraying technology as a diesel-powered model, but Thompson said the new machine runs solely on lithium batteries.
So we currently have four models of the machine. So we started with our Orchard Gus back in 2014. That was the first one we built that's designed for almonds, pistachios, walnuts, pecans, citrus, anything with kind of a wider um, spacing in that 20 foot range. And then the next machine that we built was our Mini Gus. Mini Gus is designed for vineyards and high density orchards. So anything that's just a lot narrower. The machine itself is a smaller, form factor, it's got a 400 gallon tank instead of a 600 gallon tank, which is the big one, but actually keeps the same horsepower engine, the same fan size, so it still packs a lot of power in it. The next machine we built was our herbicide Gus. That one's based on our larger chassis, so it's a 600 gallon tank. And instead of spraying the foliage of the trees, we're spraying the weeds on the ground. So it utilizes uh, spot spraying sensors that detect the weeds turn the spray nozzles on only when there's a weed present, turns the spray off when there's not. So it just saves a ton of chemical and really a phenomenal machine. And then lastly, this year, we're introducing our electric Gus. Got a top 10 award for that, so we're really excited about that machine. It's our first battery electric version of Gus. All the machines prior to this one were all diesel powered. This one's 100% battery powered on lithium ion batteries. And it's also an herbicide applicator. So uh, utilizing the same sensors to spot spray weeds. And we're targeting about a 10 to 12 hour runtime on the battery charge on that machine. So really excited about that machine. It kind of really brings in three big important factors, autonomy, and then uh, the battery electric, and also the precision of the spot spraying sensors. So kind of checks three big boxes to help growers reach their sustainability goals. The company launched the electric model at the request of some of their bigger customers who are trying to achieve their sustainability goals. One of the challenges with electric vehicles is runtime. The larger the horsepower, the more drain and the quicker the drain on the battery. That's why Thompson said they started with the herbicide model. Unlike an air blast sprayer that requires heavy horsepower, the herbicide machine doesn't require nearly as much. A fully charged electric gust can run for 10 to 12 hours before it needs recharging. Really, it's customer driven. So we started having customers, especially our larger corporate accounts, coming to us and saying, hey, look, we have these sustainability goals within our organization. Part of that goal is we want some battery electric tractors on our farm. And they wanted to know if we were going to be part of their solution to help them reach those goals. So that's what really got us looking at the battery options. Now, a challenge with with electric tractors on farms is runtime for sure. Anytime you're doing high horsepower work, it sucks down battery capacity really quick. So instead of doing our air blast sprayer first, which we know is a very high horsepower demand constantly, we started with our herbicide machine. So the herbicide machine, not turning the big fan on the back, all we're really doing is driving the vehicle, running an herbicide pump. We really thought we could get a respectable runtime out of it. And we just weren't going to build something that had a you know three-hour runtime. We just didn't think that was going to be practical for anyone on the farm. We wanted to get somewhere around that 10 to 12 hours and uh, let a grower do a full day work with the machine, charge it overnight, and use it again the next day. Designing the electric gus wasn't as simple as taking out the diesel engine, replacing it with an electric motor, and adding battery power. Thompson said they learned quite a bit about electric vehicles as they designed the electric sprayer. 
Going to re-engineering, the simplified ways, yes, remove the diesel engine and then put the batteries in, put an electric motor in, but man, we sure learned a lot about battery electric vehicles, just the DC-DC converters, the uh, inverters you need, all the cabling, the software that's involved, certainly not just a quick swap out process, um, there's quite a bit to it. Charging the sprayer will be similar to charging an electric car, you'll plug it in overnight. Because of the weight of the batteries, as well as other safety factors, Thompson said it just wasn't feasible to design the machine to where you could swap out batteries. But one measure in the works is the possibility of having mobile charging that could come out to the field rather than having to take the sprayer back to the shop every night. So we are going to basically plug this machine in. There is no way to quickly remove and replace batteries on this thing. First off, each of the batteries weighs 800 pounds, and there's four of them, so there's that challenge. In addition to that, the batteries are water-cooled, so it's really important that we don't contaminate that water system with any dust, debris, anything like that by constantly disconnecting those lines. And, you know, we're dealing with high voltage. This is uh, about an 800-volt machine, so there's some safety factors there on a large battery machine like this. We thought it'd be best to keeping batteries on the machine and really look into ways to optimize the charging at the farm. That's all stuff that we're still working through, but a big thing that we're excited about is the possibility of mobile charging. So bringing the battery charge to the tractor that's out in the field. So instead of having to constantly always take the machine back to the shop. As the Gus family of autonomous sprayers continues to grow, it'll be interesting to see what their next edition will be. This is Vicki Boyd at the World Ag Expo reporting for My Ag Life. The federally subsidized crop insurance program will cost an additional $27.7 billion over the next decade. A Congressional Budget Office report says the government pays roughly 62 cents of each dollar in premiums and sales of livestock and forage policies are exploding. A Farm Doc report says crop insurance costs should rise by 29% to nearly $125 billion for the decade ending in 2033. Despite the increase, USDA spending on crop and livestock subsidies and land stewardship programs should remain stable. While crop insurance costs likely will increase. The Senate Ag Committee says that projected costs for all farm bill related programs are now $1.46 trillion between 2025 and 2034. That's down three and a half percent from the previous 10-year baseline of one and a half trillion dollars. USA Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack says when he addresses the public, it's a means to educate citizens on the vital nature of both agriculture and the rural areas of the country. USA Ag News reporter Rod Bain shares more. Whether it is his whiteboard speech or something impromptu, during events such as USDA's centennial edition of its Agricultural Outlook Forum, or testifying before Congress on policy matters, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says it's all about educating citizens about the importance of agriculture and rural areas from an economic and social perspective. And in talking to reporters at the Ag Outlook Forum Thursday, he reiterated that there is a place for all sectors of ag and all Americans. Basically, it's designed to say, hey, can't we do better? Can't we think bigger? Can't we think higher? Aim higher. We can have production. We need production. But does it have to be at the exclusion of an opportunity for small and mid-sized operators? I don't think so. I think we can have a larger set of options. And I don't know why anybody would be against that. The secretary says in turn, this creates a greater sense of community within rural America. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Whole milk and school meals is gaining momentum. Farm News reporter Michael Clements has the story. 
For more than a decade, Congress has prevented U.S. public schools from serving whole and 2% milk to students. Now parents, physicians, dietitians, and the dairy community are pushing back, and Congress is listening. Matt Herrick, a senior vice president at the International Dairy Foods Association, says new legislation that would reinstate whole and 2% milk back in schools is gaining momentum. The legislation is the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act, and what it's really about is allowing schools to serve children the nutritious varieties of milk that they already can consume at home. So we know that since these milk options were removed from school meals, that's whole and 2% milk, children are not drinking as much milk. They're not eating their meals with the same level of frequency. They're not consuming the necessary nutrients that they need. And as a result, they're throwing away more food. So we're seeing an increase of food waste. At the same time, the science around the nutrition of dairy fats has changed dramatically in the last decade. So we now know, for instance, that full fat dairy products like whole milk are actually beneficial to kids because they lower the risk of heart disease and they lower childhood obesity. So bringing these milk varieties back to schools is a no-brainer. The International Dairy Foods Association released new polling of parents who are near unanimous in their support of the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act. Herrick says parents are key to making sure the bill passes Congress this year. Our new polling for Morning Consult tells us that 94% of parents out there serve their children whole or 2% milk at home. And that's because they consider milk to be healthy. They see it as nutritious. It's wholesome. It tastes good. Nine in 10 parents said that they want to see whole and 2% milk reinstated in school meals. And the same amount want to see Congress pass legislation that restores whole and 2% milk in schools. So it's really overwhelming support from parents who are really the most important voice about what kids should be eating in schools that want to see whole and 2% milk restored. It's near unanimous support. Herrick says that IDFA and the dairy community need the support of all stakeholders to get the bill passed during this calendar year. Our team really is bringing this polling information and the strong science underpinning our arguments to Capitol Hill directly. So we are talking to legislators, we're talking to our members, we're asking them to advocate by sending letters and emails and text messages to members of Congress, to their staff, directly to those members. All of that work has paid off in December. The House of Representatives passed this bill by a wide margin, 330 to 99. We're hopeful we can get that same level of support in the Senate. So we're asking folks out there to submit these letters, to contact your members of Congress. And you can do that by going to our website, wholemilkforkids.com. You can fill out a very quick pre-filled form. It'll submit a letter to whoever represents your state or your district, letting them know that you support this bill and you want them to support this bill too. Again, that website is wholemilkforkids.com. Michael Clements reporting. Unit sales of four-wheel drive tractors grew slightly in the U.S. during January. The latest data from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers shows four-wheel drive tractor sales increased 1.4% year-over-year and was the only segment to show growth in January. In Canada, four-wheel drive tractor sales were unchanged at 409 units in January compared to 2023. The slight gain in U.S. four-wheel drive tractors is positive news as 2024 begins, according to AEM Senior Vice President Kurt Blades. He says while overall sales fell in both the U.S. and Canada compared to 2023 sales, they remain optimistic about future long-term growth. Overall unit sales of U.S. tractors dropped by 21.2% compared to January 2023 sales, while combine sales finished 4.9% below last January. Under 40 horsepower tractors were down 26% from last year. Canadian tractor sales ended January 30% below the 2023 data. Combines were also down 9.5% in January compared to last year. 
JCS Marketing is your number one way to connect with the ag industry. Through print magazines, digital media, podcasts, and live and virtual events, JCS Marketing has the reach to inform, educate, and influence growers in the Western United States. Everywhere you go, you see West Coast Net Magazine on every one of my customers' tables. So that tells you everything. That's, that, it's there, so they're reading it. Our My Ag Life platform includes podcast interviews and digital articles for busy professionals on the go. Our live events, continuing education webinars, and virtual conferences help growers connect with leading researchers and industry leaders. Let JCS Marketing help you connect. That will wrap up today's show. You've been listening to the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm Lori Boyer. From all of us here at the JCS Marketing Team, thank you for listening. Thank you.